Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Surprised by Grief. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife, Dawn, died of pancreas cancer back in April of 2019 on Easter Sunday. Hi, I'm Clarissa Mall. My husband was author and CT editor Rob Mall. Rob died in a hiking accident in July 2019 on our family's vacation. Well, Clarissa, at least you're young. Thank you, Daniel. Well, at least Dawn isn't in pain anymore. At least she's not in pain anymore, yes. And, well, you know, you have children, at least, for lovely kids. That's right. And at least you're financially secure. Yeah, as an editor, I really am. Uh, uh, it's well, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, it's hard to know what to say. I We've both, no doubt, had to, I guess I would say, receive mm-hmm. from folks um, words that they want to offer that help. But uh, sometimes it just doesn't like when people would say something along the lines of, you know, it was obviously God's will. Yeah. Yeah. Those spiritual platitudes can be hard, especially because they take a little nugget of truth and then they twist it up into something that doesn't actually feel good. I wonder, do you think it has something to do with just our discomfort around death itself, our fears, uh, our discomfort with being around grief? Yeah, I think largely we learn how to talk about grief from Hallmark cards. You know, Mm. we don't have a whole lot of language in the church even to talk about engaging with someone who is deeply suffering. And so I think we just kind of fumble our way. We hope that the things that we're saying will convey the spirit of love and our compassion for someone. But I think that most of us, if we actually sat and thought about the things that are coming out of our mouths, when we talk to a grieving person, we would be like, whoa, I'm not sure even I believe this. I think back to the time before Rob died to friends who suffered loss. And I said those things, you know, you can look forward to heaven or she's in a better place. And I think to myself, Oh, guilty as charged. Those words do not help. But I'm not sure that I had anything else to say that would have been helpful. Nobody taught me how to talk about death. I was thinking that how after Dawn died, the phrase that I heard most often, somewhat surprisingly, was people would say, no words. I have no words. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that signaled their sensitivity and awareness, as you're saying, that because they've probably heard as we're talking now that you know, we do tend to say dumb things. And, you know, ironically, I I was okay with people saying something because it did convey a kind of love and a a kind of care. I think what was hard for me was just having what felt like to me the burden to correct people or to help them to say what I needed to hear. You know, what you wanted is for people to, to get it. And it's just hard to get. Yeah. Really, they realize the chasm that lies between themselves and you, and they're trying to 
build this bridge through the air to you. And so all of those attempts kind of end up feeling feeble. But I really believe that a poorly crafted something is better than a beautifully articulate nothing. And uh, <laughs> you know, so it's why I uh, am committed to helping both grievers and those who are grief adjacent to become fluent in words of consolation. Yeah. So what helped you? What was good that people said to you? Well, I think a lot of the time it was the actions that accompanied the things that they said. But when you know the person and you you know the intentions of their heart and they keep showing up at your house with a meal and saying something awkward, you're able to say, okay, those words actually mean I love you. And I can tell that because you keep being present with me. And I think for me, it wasn't so much the words that people said, but their commitment to me as a person over the long haul that really made a difference for me in grief that, you know, I think that a lot of people felt like the words were the most important thing, but actually the presence was the most important thing. How about you? Yeah, I was thinking of a couple of things. I, you know, unlike you, there was, you know, a time when, you know, early on the words were addressed to Dawn as she suffered her cancer. And then as she got closer to death and of course, after she died, those came toward me. And, you know, there's a desperate sense and need to make sense of it. I think especially as Christians, this teaching we hold to that God is in control. And and so somehow there must be kind of a good purpose behind it and how hard it is, you know, to find good purposes and things like cancer and fatal accidents. And, but this ironic comfort actually came from our oncologist as we were trying to understand how Dawn would have contracted this cancer. And he simply said, I, I don't know, you know, that these cancers, they just emerge as cells go one way instead of another, that it's just the way life unfolds. And again, in our ironic sense, the comfort that gave us was that it wasn't that Dawn had done something particularly bad or that, you know, somehow she was at fault, any kind of blame the victim thing, but this is just how her life unfolded. And yeah, it just gave us just a, a kind of calm that we weren't in a sense special, but that we were part of humanity in a way that suffered. Yeah. And then, you know, after Dawn died, some of the cliches that you know, we think we shouldn't say, actually proved immensely helpful uh, mm. to me. Things like a day at a time and life moves forward and one step at a time, deep breath. I mean, all of those things that seem so cliche. Um, I think for me, they were cliche in a sense because they worked. And I would still say that, hey, I can do today has proven to be immensely helpful. Yeah, I think it's interesting that those kind of cliches have to do with living, not dying. Hmm. Um, we're more conversant about life than we are about death. And so those cliches that seem to hold true, they resonate because we know a lot about life. We know a lot about moving forward. I think about your doctor and I think about how his willingness to sit with you in mystery it's such a comfort. All of these platitudes, the things we say to try to 
create a linear perspective on grief or a happy light at the end of the tunnel for death. You know, we talk about heaven. It's all a way of trying to order a reality that is entirely dark, that's mystery to us. And for me, certainly people who are willing to acknowledge that mystery sit in it with me and not try to provide answers. Those were the people that were most helpful. I think about a woman at church who soon after Rob died, she invited me to go to a movie with her. And uh, it was a really sweet gesture. And I just wasn't ready for that kind of thing. And I politely told her no. And she received it. But you know, she came and sat with me in Sunday school week after week after that. And she didn't seem offended that I had turned her down. She was just willing to sit there and be present with me in whatever way I needed. And that kind of person who's willing to say, oh, that didn't work. Okay, well, I'll try something else. That's a person who's willing to sit in the mystery of death with you and acknowledge that your grief is bigger than what they can understand and that that's okay. I like this phrase that you've mentioned, toxic positivity, and (laughs) that comfort somehow equals making you feel better. And for me, the power of the grief in part was sort of descending into that dark space that I wanted to drink my fill of that. I wasn't afraid of the despondency. <laughs> Why do you think that was? I mean, a lot of people are. They run I know, from it, right? I know. I think part of it was walking through the cancer with Dawn and, you know, just being in that last moment, you know, her hand in my hand when she breathed her last and just feeling that finality and it's not a matter of not wanting to then grieve because I think some people would feel like, okay, you know, that's done funeral move ahead. But I've come to learn that grief has its own timetable and intention and that it's very patient. And if you don't want to attend to it, you know, it'll find you, but that there's work to be done. And because grief is a function of love, you know, somehow to not grieve and to step into that despondency, that despair, for me at least, would have been a sign that I didn't love her. And I really did embrace that time and still do when it emerges as a function of the love I feel and and felt for Dawn. It was just very important. And I was surprised with not only how I welcomed it, but how healing those tears were. Mm. It's so interesting to hear that perspective because I fought it. I fought. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to plumb the depths of this. I mean, it felt like I'm going to fall and I'm going to, it's like those nightmares you have of continually falling. Yeah. That's my nightmare is that I will fall into this grief and I will keep falling and falling and falling. Even though, you know, I trust Jesus and I, I know God's presence in my life, the sense that. I will literally drown in this if I open that box even just a little bit, you know, to let something out. And I struggled with that. I mean, I think the way that I saw it in my life was largely that I refused practical care at the beginning. Like, I don't want meals. I don't want someone to drive my kids to youth group. I don't want to be broken. And it wasn't until my therapist said to me, have you cried recently? (laughs) And I was kind of like, you know, I'm done with that. I can't be crying every day because I'm exhausted and I can't function well. I, my body's screaming, <laughs> pay attention, pay attention. And I just didn't want to. And it, it took somebody from the outside saying, 
I think you need people to start bringing you meals. And I think you need to have help in this way. And I had refused all of that, I realized, because I didn't want to see how deeply broken I was by Rob's death, how it had utterly crushed me. Mm. But what I found was that by turning to that sorrow that I really felt would drown me, it didn't. (laughs) Surprisingly, it didn't. It hurt. It hurt terribly, but it didn't make me afraid in the way that I had thought it would. And I think that's how a lot of fear is, right? That we fear things and we run away from them when turning to them might actually take away some of our fear. But there is this sense of, if I trust in Jesus, I don't need to grieve. I don't need to be sad about, you know, he lived a long life. He's now with God. We'll have a celebration service instead of funeral worship because I don't need to feel sad about this. And I think while there is a lot of truth to the hope that we have, you know, of the resurrection that's sort of mixed up in all of that reasoning, I think it often is a way for people to hold their grief at bay, to not allow themselves to dive into the depths of what they've lost. I think there's still this longing to put our finger in the dike and not let a smidge of grief leak out into the lives that we're living post-loss. What do you think we're scared of? Maybe for Christians that all of this isn't actually true. Hmm. I mean, I felt like that sometimes. There are moments where I felt like this is all a construct and it's all just trying to make me feel better. And God, where are you? How could this have happened? And that really conjures up all of my most primal fears about life, about purpose, about God's sovereignty and kindness toward me, about his character. And those kind of doubts are scary to face. Hmm. I was thinking how one of the gifts that I got was a a Catholic crucifix. And what struck me for a, a bit in that moment and what I appreciated about that particular crucifix was just seeing that suffering Jesus as kind of an invitation to not shun the suffering and death that is endemic to life. It's kind of a a strange irony that our hope in resurrection, nowhere in the Bible does it ever show up without first suffering and death, that it's a package, you know, that comes together. But that in our enthusiasm, to use sort of theological expression of that, our entheos into God, our enthusiasm for that eternal life to start now, we have sort of whitewashed what that resurrection life demands first. I like to say it's why we have crosses on our church walls instead of empty tombs, just to remind us that the way of life is the way of death. But even as I say this, I mean, I and I would preach this a lot as a pastor, and just to recognize that this is the way God has made life. That reality was my friend when it was my turn. And I think when people tried to insist that, no, that's not the case, that's what was most difficult because they were not allowing me to do the very thing that I believed God intended for all of us to do, which is to suffer, experience grief, and to see in that grief the fertile ground for resurrection. One of my favorite children's books for grieving children is Lauren Chandler's Goodbye to Goodbyes. 
such a good story. It retells the story of Lazarus for children. And one of the reasons why I really like it as a grief book, it's not written as a grief book per se for kids, but Lauren does such a beautiful job of telling the story of Lazarus and she lets Lazarus die and she lets Jesus cry. And I think, boy, if we can invite our children into that reality as young people to hear the truth about death and dying and the hurt, then I hope that they'll receive the truth of the resurrection with new ears because it's a both and experience, this side of Jesus coming again. Mm. It's just, again, back to this conviction that tragedy and reality and death are unavoidable for us. And, you know, that the only way that we will not grieve is to not love. And that's just not an option. So, you know, with love comes grief. And when the grief comes, I think to, again, see it as a function of that love was helpful for me and what enabled me to, again, to embrace it. There's a lot of focus, I think, on that first year, surviving, getting through, adjusting to new routines. What has it been like since? I mean, when grief isn't new anymore, but it's still walking with you. And how have people showed up for you? What has been helpful? And and how do you see it? your grief changing as time passes? That's a great question. One of the things we experience in our grief is, you know, that initial flood of people. And then as folks peel off, as life moves forward, there is a a little sense that we're being abandoned. And for me, a sense that, oh, people are forgetting and that somehow I'm becoming isolated now in these feelings that I'm holding on to. But I think for me, you know, getting through the first year was important. I think entering into seconds of things, you know, there were plenty of folks who told me the second year was the worst year, but I didn't experience that. I I think because I was intentional and willing to embrace what grief brought to me that the second year wasn't harder, but just a continuation. I've made it a practice as we've come to the next anniversary and second Christmas and birthday and all of those seconds to write letters to Dawn to say thank you, to imagine whatever heaven is like for her to stay engaged. I think the hardest part for me is having your kids keep growing, (laughs) you know, and and for all that they're becoming that our spouses won't get to enjoy. But in some sense, that's been a a fruit of it too, as, as my relationship with my daughter is something that it would never have been had Dawn not died. And that's not to say better, worse, just so different and trying to pay attention to that. One book I read said there's, you know, two stages of grief, awful and better. <laughs> and so being in the better space, I recognize that it's just the rest of my life, so it'll always be there. How about for you? Well, I think it's interesting how grief shifts. At first it's very much about me and what I'm experiencing, the loss that I have, and over time the grief shifts more to the person that you've lost. The focus shifts, I think. I have started a little tradition of my own to buy myself a gift from Rob for all the holidays that he would have bought me a gift for. Well, that's nice. I've got my birthday coming up next week. and Are you you spending more money than he would have spent? Well, (laughs) let's just say the the gifts are on point. I'll be honest. All right. And um, I bought myself a gift from him and I feel like 
it's a way for me to connect with the love that he had for me. And for me, I think that has been the shift after grief has lost its newness. Grief is still about my own experience, but it's very much a connection of love to him. I carry my grief differently. It hurts still like the Dickens sometimes and takes me down, but it's about missing him. And it's about the life that we could have lived together. And and that I felt that shift as time has gone on. And so it allows me, it opens me up to be able to celebrate him in ways that I really couldn't celebrate him at the beginning. And I think that's where that push through those platitudes and cliches is so important in early grief. Like, you do not need to feel good about this person's life. You do not need to feel like it's all been worth it. Maybe those things will come for you and Lord willing, you'll feel a sense of peace and and God's presence. But at the beginning when it's raw, just let it hurt. And I wish that I could tell myself in those first days and weeks, there's going to come a time where you don't feel blind anymore, where you don't feel like you're absolutely lost in the darkness. It's going to be hard. And you'll still carry your grief with you, but it's going to feel different. And your grief will become a celebration of your love for him in a way that you can't even imagine now in the throes of really agony that you're enduring. Hmm. I think in addition to that, I've been surprised by how part of my life now is sort of embracing this fact that while Dawn's influence and imprint is always and will always be on my soul. Because she's not here, I can't do what she would have wanted like she would have wanted it because we were so different. That's right. And that's been a shift for me. Like, oh, wait a minute, this is my decision now. And what she would have chosen can't apply. And that's been hard because I think trying to honor what she would have done, even if it doesn't work, was a way I felt I was still loving her memory mm-hmm. when in fact it wasn't working. But then the other thing, and I don't know if I've confessed this yet and how I feel about it, about confessing it, but I was surprised, Clarissa, at some of the relief I felt. And I felt a lot of guilt about feeling that relief. My counselor was good about saying, well, it's not like you love somebody who wasn't human. You know, there are things about Dawn and her personality that were you know, that we fought about and were hard. And again, she would want to do things one way. I would want to do them another way. And for her to be gone and to realize some of those points of conflict for us, again, around finances, around parenting or whatever, that that is gone. And I don't have to endure that anymore came as a a strange kind of relief. I struggled with that early on. Mm. Especially when you have kids, there's this tendency to mythologize the person. Right. Uh, You know, like your mom was the best cook and she always knew what to say. You know, your dad always played football with you in the backyard and always, you know, that's not real life. And not only does that set our kids up for a real struggle as they move into adulthood, trying to measure up to this person that's not real. It's not honest. And it's not an honest way for us to grieve. It's another way of sugarcoating our loss. I have talked to my kids, you know, we talk frequently about the ways Rob screwed up. Mm. And not because in any way do I not value him as a person, but because I never want my kids to 
forget that he was human. I need to remember that he was human. That's important for my own grief experience because I can often, when I have to make decisions without him, I can think to myself, well, he would have known how to do this. And I diminish my own voice. I undermine my confidence. And I trust actually in his wisdom and not in God's. Mm. I come to rely on this picture that I have painted of a person who becomes all-knowing, all-wise. And it really lets me step away from saying, okay, God, I am imperfect. And you've called me to do this big job. You're going to have to help me out. And I'm going to have to trust you. And I find that it's a subtle shift, but it's an important one for me um, as I lead my family and as I navigate life without him. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. And I think it's just a good reminder that we all long to be made new, that the experience of our loved one who is now with Christ was their being made new. (laughs) And I need to remember that too, that it's not like he's on this permanent, awesome vacation, but through death, he experienced that transformation that I still long for. And he was transformed because he was imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. What do you do for others now that you've experienced this when they have to confront grief and loss? Well, I feel like I've tried to learn from what people have done for me, what's been helpful. I try to avoid platitudes. Mm -hmm. I tell people, I'm sorry for your loss of your, and then I fill in the blank. And I know that's just a little bit different from I'm sorry for your loss, but I feel like people need to know that I'm paying attention to their person Mm. that's gone. And so I try to be careful with my words when I interact with someone who's grieving. I also try to check in on people, just random check-ins. Hey, I'm thinking of you today. Not, how's your grief? Sometimes it's that, but a lot of times it's just, you're on my heart today so that someone knows that they haven't been forgotten. And I want to be one of those people who don't forget. And so sometimes that means marking it on my calendar so that I remember, oh, this is a person's day where things are extra hard for them, or I... um, make a a notification on my phone. But I think that kind of intentionality is the kind of thing that really was a comfort to me, especially after those months where people thought, oh, she's high functioning, she's fine. To have people that walked alongside of me in whatever way they could, I want to be that person for other people. Mm, That's awesome. Yeah, I think for me, the, you know, it's, I'm aware that people are aware that I know how they feel, you know, cause oftentimes I'm in those situations because people have asked me to be there. They've connected me because they know somebody who's lost. I've lost. Can you guys make a connection? That might even be how we met Clarissa. Um, it is. Yes. And I'm always honored to do that. And, and I'll admit a lot of it's for my own sake <laughs> that I, I like to be now in the presence of people who have lost because you do cut through so much of the preliminaries and get to that space that's real because of what you've suffered. And I agree that, you know, acknowledging the awfulness, being able to express a genuine sympathy and solidarity, saying their person's name or their loss and inviting them if they want to talk about it, to talk about it without, you know, having to filter it 
that I can take that. You know, amongst the many, many things that I have learned having walked down this this road is you just learn what matters most. And it is these relationships and people and and their loves and you know their core passions all tend to revolve around people and their faith and what is meaningful in life. And when it comes down to the people we meet, you press us into corners. The things that matter most are the people that we love. That's right. Yeah. I'm writing a book with Tyndale right now. And as I sit down to write my chapters, I take a moment to envision the person who will someday hold that book in their hands. And I think about the people who will have maybe only those words in my book to walk with them. And I think that the honor of walking with someone, the honor of being able to, as you say, um, I can handle that, (laughs) being that person for someone to say, Mm -hmm. I can bear this weight with you. It's such a gift. It's such a gift. And, you know, if we are comforted so that we can comfort others, I think that is the surprise that I have found in grief that when you feel like you're entirely emptied by your sorrow, that you're just undone over time, something new grows inside of you so that you do have something to give. And I think that's the gift of the spirit to offer that kind of comfort that you have received to someone else. This is Surprised by Grief, where we're exploring just all of the pathways and permutations and ways that grief affects our life. And today we're delighted to welcome uh, Pat and Tammy McLeod, parents who have suffered their own loss. They're authors of the book Hit Hard and currently serve as student chaplains for Harvard University as part of a crew staff there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So glad you guys are with us here this morning. And yeah, we thought we'd just kick off and have you uh, maybe share your story with us. Sure. Thanks for having us. And yes, our story began on the first night of school. We were actually in a room filled with college students, a couple hundred college students who were happy, laughing, smiling all together for the first time after a long summer. Someone came up behind me. It was actually a Harvard student who impatiently interrupted the conversation I was in. She handed me her phone, said to us, your son is trying to reach you. When I answered the phone, it was my son, Nate, who was home alone and just laid into me, said, Dad, Zach's been hurt. Zach was at a football game. And first of all, there were parents calling and then the coaches started calling. Now the hospital is calling. Dad, he's being airlifted to a hospital. And they say that he'll have to undergo an emergency brain surgery and they need you. They need to talk to you right now. Minutes later, we were rushing down Massachusetts Avenue. We arrived at a hospital. We were taken right to the pre-op room and this doctor busts through the doors. He tells us that Zach had suffered a traumatic brain injury that they needed to open up his skull cap and remove a clot of blood and cauterize some vessels and that this kind of procedure could result in death. He said, on the other hand, he could have a full recovery or anything in between. Would you sign right here? And we did. And uh, he was out the door to prepare and we bent over our son, Zach, and prayed for him. And then with a click of the bed wheels, locks, they wheeled him away. And five hours later, 
a nurse appeared and said, you can come meet the doctor. He told us that Zach had survived and that we just needed to wait and see. And I would say the rest of the story is that our, our marriage has survived and Zach has survived and our family has survived, but everything has changed. I actually remember being with you guys when all of that happened. And, uh, and I know that, of course, in the wake of that awfulness, there's been so much that has happened redemptively and beautifully. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about all that is, you know, has happened in these years. So Zach spent four months in a rehab hospital after the ICU, and then he went to a neuro rehab school. So he went straight from the hospital into that school. And Zach, as he is now, he has very little short-term memory, very little speech. His right side has weaknesses of all kinds, and he needs one-on-one care for the rest of his life. So he'll never be able to marry or live alone or work to provide for himself. And the other side, so there are hard things. There are also great things. He is the most happy and joyful person that I know. So he lights up a room when he walks in. He still loves Jesus and he still has a close relationship with people and still notices the marginalized. When we walk past someone who doesn't have a home, he'll stop to interact with them. Even though he can't talk, he'll try to communicate with them. So though it's very hard the position he's been left in in life, he brings so much joy and happiness to our lives. Well, talk a little bit about this phrase that I know you have used a lot to describe your loss, this notion of ambiguous loss. After Zach was injured, the first days I just needed solitude and silence. I would go to spend time with God, face on the floor crying, reading the Psalms every morning. But after those initial months, I started reading grief books and I thought these do not relate to me very well because my son didn't die. And I was frustrated. I went to colleagues, I went to friends and said, does anyone know anything about books that address our type of loss? And no one could help me. So I finally just called the rehab hospital. And that day they sent links to Pauline Boss and she coined the term ambiguous loss. And I had never heard of that before. So I started reading and I thought, oh, finally, someone understands me. So it was amazing just hearing her talk about it. And she talks about two types of loss. So there's physical absence, like you don't have the person, but you psychologically still have them in their same mind. And then there's the type where you physically have the person, but psychologically they're not there in the same way. And that's our situation. So it was amazing to me to hear her talk about it being the most stressful type of loss. And she said, there's rarely acceptance for ambiguous loss and there's never closure. And it's the first time I ever heard someone talk about not having closure. Uh, She says that the way to cope with or manage ambiguous losses, you you just need to learn to live well with both having and not having at the same time. And she said, generally people do one or the other, but not both. So 
In our case, it was the case that I was the person who was obsessing over the son we still had and revising my attachment to him, and, but living in complete denial about the fact that the son that we had, there was a portion of him that had died. Tammy, on the other hand, completely embraced that. She grieved that. She acknowledged that, but was having a harder time revising her attachment to the son that we still had. And so that part of what I think is behind her saying it's a stressful kind of loss. It's not not worse, but it's stressful because you both have and don't have at the same time. And it can torque relationships because of the way you get frozen in the grief process. I mean, it's been a number of years and what have been some of the most helpful, powerful tactics you've discovered as you continue to you know, to love Zach and and walk this road? Two for me are, first of all, discovering hope and Henry Nouwen's term in breaking hope is super helpful to me. So I was already doing examine at the end of the day. And that's just a practice where you look back over the day and think about with God, what was life giving? What was life thwarting? And so Doing that practice at the end of every day helped me see the hope breaking in every day. And I'm so grateful for the hope of heaven. I'm going to get to see Zach someday until I have a new body. But I really do need in breaking hope to be able to live now in this world. And then a second thing for me is just going to grief counseling, the counselor told us to be gentle with each other. (laughs) And that was really good for us. After we heard him talk about that, whenever we would get into a fight that was intense, we would say, let's hold that until counseling. So we took Mm -hmm. all our really tough issues to the counselor so that someone was sitting there and listening to us talk with each other. Yeah. I have a couple thoughts. I think stories are really powerful. And perhaps most importantly in this regard, stories have this way of taking us on an emotional journey, a journey that can actually surface and soften some of the hardest emotions of life. That's all to say this. Well, two things. First of all, the Bible is filled with stories and especially redemptive stories. But actually for me, writing our own story writing the book together was how I learned how to grieve. Hmm. We did do a ceremony that was really, really powerful. And, you know, for years, Tammy had begged me on the anniversary of Zach's injury to gather people together and kind of grieve. And I, I, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I, that just sounds terrible to me. And, um, you know, after reading some of the, well, reading her own paper, I'm like, okay, maybe we should do this. And so we, we decided on the day between Zach's injury, the anniversary of his injury, and his actual birthday, that we would do two ceremonies. We would have a ceremony of remembrance, of just reflecting back on the fact that we've lost Zach the way that he was, and this is who he was, and we're going to acknowledge that, and in a community, grieve it. And Zach wasn't at that ceremony, obviously. At the next ceremony. It was just a birthday party. Zach was there hugging everyone and we were celebrating the Zach we still had. So it was it was a significant moment for sure and a healing moment. But it was the process leading up to that for me that really helped me to acknowledge my pain and grieve because I prepared a slideshow. I took a bunch of pictures of Zach, my favorite pictures of him, and combined them with his favorite music 
And for several weeks, you know, I worked on this. I was so proud of myself for doing an iMovie. You know, I learned how to create an iMovie, but I also wept through it. And um, yeah, it was a really life-giving way of moving through a, a healthier grief process. Well, one of the questions that I have about ambiguous loss, I guess, is that this loss happened to a person who is still developing. And so in a way, your grief, even as you have found rituals to mark it, it keeps going. And particularly as your son grew up. And I wonder how do you wear that loss now? So Dr. Boss talks about revising your attachments is one of the things that you need for resilience and ambiguous loss. And for example, Zach and I used to play worship songs together, sing together. We prayed every night before he went to bed. We read the scriptures together, shared our hopes and dreams for the future. So basically we had to shift. I had to revise my attachment. The attachment stays the same. That closed bond is never broken, but I have to shift what I do with him now. So it was hard for me at first when I would go into my room and try to connect with him through singing because then it would just depress me. So for a while, I just needed to take a little break. And I thought, okay, I don't need to set myself up every weekend to be emotionally destroyed. But I'm back singing with him again. So we're at year 12 now. And so the pain isn't as raw. But Every time he walks in the door, I'm so happy to see him and I give him a big hug. But then in the next moment, he's choking on food or he fell and I couldn't catch him because he's too heavy for me. So within even the first few minutes of coming into our house, I have to do the having, not having, holding. So it's still complicated. That hasn't changed much, but the raw pain is a lot different for me at year 12. So as you think about your experience, where you've come from, where you are now, what is something that has surprised you about grief and about your interaction with loss? What has surprised me was how good it actually felt physically, emotionally, for sure, to cry. And um, like, I think, for example, when I was writing the book, I was, there was this one chapter that I got up every morning. We had a whole week to write. It was right at the beginning of the summer. I went to the Starbucks at Harvard Square. I sat in the exact same seat. I got there early. I was like one of the first ones and got, got that seat before anyone else could get it. And I sat there and wrote for hours every day and just wept. And I felt like I had to apologize to some of the people on both sides because they're seeing this middle-aged man just like in tears. I'm like, trust me, these are really good tears in a way. This is like poison that's been locked up inside of me that's coming out right now. And I don't want to stop it and I'm not going to stop it. And um, yeah, so that was a surprise of just how it almost felt like I had just been cleansed, like the inside of my soul had been cleansed by allowing grief to come out. And that was a surprise. I didn't see that coming. I said I spent a lot of time in the Psalms. I'm just reading a Psalm every day still now at year 12. I love spending time in the Psalms because they remind me of who God is and who I am and how much God loves me. So I had 
thought before about Psalm 34, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That was the Psalm that stood out to me most in those early days, but I never had experienced it at such a deep level before. So it became really clear to me that it's not like we were some special people. Pat and Tammy are so great that I'm going to be near to them. (laughs) What I learned through this is it's God's nature to be near those who are suffering. And so now that even gives me more courage in ministry with college students to help them to think about moving toward their pain, because I know what they're going to find when they do that is they're going to be surprised by grief. They're going to be surprised that they find that God is probably nearer to them than he's ever been before as they're suffering. Jesus, when you going to wake up? When you going to wake up and calm this raging sea? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by the Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up